Hello and welcome to Gamer to Gamer. This is a podcast where I interview pros in the RPG industry about the games they make and love to play. I'm your host, James Intracasso. Today's guest is the one and only Craig Campbell. Craig is an amazing game designer who's worked on Dungeons and Dragons, and now he's got his own game company called Nerd Burger Games, and they are putting out some great stuff. Most recently, they've had a successful Kickstarter for Murders and Acquisitions. Greg has a storied history in this industry and is one of the hardest working people you will ever meet. Seriously, the secret to this guy's success is that he never stops working. He's incredible. I can't wait to get to the interview. But before we do that, I want to remind you to please use the affiliate links at thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, NobleKnight.com. They're a brick-and-mortar game store that also exists online. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. My product pick from Noble Knight for this episode is Dragon Magazine Annual Number 1. If you like 4th edition D&D, this is a cool supplement that you can get. It's a lot of the online Dragon Magazine articles that were around during the first year of 4th edition, and they are reprinted into a beautiful hardcover book. Uh, the retail price for this was about 30 bucks. It is 10 dollars at noblenight.com. There's a direct link to this product in the show notes for this episode over at thetomeshow.com, or you can check it out directly at Noble Knight. And to endorse Noble Knight today, we have Makar, the village idiot. Oh, hey, how's it going, guys? I was just uh, coming over here to talk about something. Uh, no. Noble Knight, Noble Knight, you were coming to talk about Oh, that's right, yeah. Noble Knight, let me tell you all about it. I know Sir Denethor and Sir Didymus and Sir Gerwin. No, 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 not those knights, not not those knights. You you need to, to tell us more about NobleKnight.com. Oh, you mean the greatest Noble Knight. Yeah, yeah, I, I do mean that, Noble Knight. Well, let me tell you all about it. There's a great store that you can walk into, but you can also buy your products online. It's at noblelight.com. They got tons of RPGs, especially out-of-print products. Plus, you can sell your old stuff there if you're not using it anymore. So, they make your money and let you spend your money there. That's pretty cool. Yep. Yeah, that is. That is pretty cool. All right, Makar, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Now it is time to get to my interview with Craig. No, no, thank you. All right, everybody. Now I'm here with the one and only Craig Campbell. Craig, welcome to Gamer to Gamer. How are you? 
Great. I'm doing great, James. Uh, thank you for having me on board. Uh, it's been a little while since we talked, but uh, I've been looking forward to this all day. <laughs> <laughs> so have I. So have I. I think the last time you were on, you came on the roundtable. We talked a lot about uh, murders and acquisitions, which was your Kickstarter. And we talked a little bit about your history, but I really want to get in depth to, uh, with your, your personal history with gaming and everything, because this is like uh, like a great mini lecture series almost for people. And for me, I really do it for my own personal interest. Um, <laughs> so I can hear uh, great designers like yourself talk. So take me all the way back. When was the first time you laid hands on a tabletop RPG? What was it and what role did you play? Were you a game master? Were you a player? If so, what, you know, race class or whatever did you play? Ah, uh, well, go back to junior high school. My friend broke out this little uh, book and a, and a bunch of weird looking dice and said, Hey, you want to play this game? I know you do. It's you can, you can kill dragons in it. And I said, that sounds great. And then never <laughs> mentioned it again. Oh no. <laughs> Cut to my <laughs> freshman year of college. Um, several years later. And, uh, the same kind of thing happened with my friend, Brian. He said, Hey, you should play this game. And, and he told me a little bit about it and it was a uh, second edition D and D. Um, and I said, sure, let's give it a shot. It was right toward the end of the year. And he got his roommate um, and one of the other guys on our floor together, and he ran um, just one session of a Ravenloft game. And only two things really stick in my mind from that game. One was that at one point we were pushing a wooden raft with sticks, you know, with just the big poles across a swamp, and I almost got eat up by a giant frog. <laughs> Um, but I survived that to continue pushing myself across the swamp. Oh, thank goodness. And, yes, absolutely. What an inauspicious end to our <laughs> elven bard. Um, and I, Yeah, I played an elven bard whose name was, and get this, Del Elminster. Now, <laughs> before you call shenanigans, understand I had read bits and pieces of the second edition player's handbook. I had never laid eyes on a single bit of Forgotten Realms lore at this point. I simply combined the words elven and minstrel, playing the half-elven bard, into Elminster. And I learned, you know, like the next year when we start, started playing Forgotten Realms, I was like, oh, look at that. Um, <laughs> that's weird. So I guess maybe I was kind of on the wavelength just accidentally right out of the gate. I mean, I'm just going out on a limb and saying you might have cracked the Ed Greenwood code and figured <laughs> out how he comes up with his, you know, the the names for his characters and everything. So um, you might have know. done that. <laughs> Maybe. Um so that next that that summer I kinda you know my my brain devoured the books. I didn't get a chance to play because I was spending the summer in a little tiny town. And uh that fall Back at sophomore year of college, we started playing a bunch of those guys, um, plus a couple of other friends of theirs. And then the third year of college, we were all living in the dorms, and we all moved into the same suite. So we were all in rooms that were adjacent to one another, and we played like crazy people. If, if we didn't have schoolwork to do, if we weren't at classes, if we didn't have homework or you know, other social engagements, we were gaming. And we played second edition D&D. We played quite a lot of Star Wars. A couple of the guys were huge Star Wars fans. We played the West End Games version. We played uh, a bit of Shadowrun, whatever edition we were on at that time, second edition, I think. Lots and lots of dice on the table. And we just beat a little one-shots here and there. We played like a little bit of Paranoia, a little bit of Tune. Um, college kind of wrapped out, and I kind of drifted away from those guys a little bit, although we keep in touch. We just don't game anymore, and I fell into another group. And that introduced me because I met some different people, and we still played D&D. 
um, second edition and eventually third edition. Right, but right. I got into World of Darkness. Oh, and nice. that whole bent of games where I had been playing, you know, not really hack and slash, but it was, you know, we treated the game like an adventure game. It's like, here's a series of challenges for you to overcome with your character. Um, and there was role playing involved, but it was mostly just, you know, it was the social aspect and it was just having fun kind of figuring out how to get past the, the DM's baddies and traps and tricks and puzzles. Um, and then World of Darkness came along and I delved deep into Gustav, a vampire in the Dark Ages game. And touched on the the eviler side of Craig, and it was a little weird and a little frightening at times. But I it was a group. The group that played those games were very theatery, oh, and uh, they nice. were all involved. We got we we play, we port, we uh, performed at the Bristol Renaissance Fair. So we went to this thing where we went for Saturday and Sunday for nine hours each day, and you played a character the whole time, and you didn't break character in front of the public. And so we played that. We played Changeling with the other group. There was you know continued D and D delved into role master which we hated <laughs> chart master as they call it um we tried desperately to play call of cthulhu but the mindset of the group was wrong because we were too close of friends and goofy and jokey to let the mood of cthulhu permeate the game and also we just as a group the only time we could really get together was in the afternoon so it wasn't dark it would might have helped if we could play dark now, I had been GMing from back, you know, in those first couple of years, I started GMing here and there. And it was during this period that I started GMing a lot myself. And I was DMing my own weeknight game and I was playing with the other people in that group on the Saturdays. And uh, Deadlands came out, the original pinnacle, the first version of Deadlands. And I'm a horror nut and a Western history nut. And so that game spoke to me. And to this day, I have not played a single game of Deadlands as a player. I have only ever run it. Wow. Um, because anytime it, Deadlands comes up, I'm like, all right, I'm on board. Here we go. <laughs> Hucksters and, and, and Harold, let's roll. And I've, so I ran a whole bunch of that, uh, including one you know, like long, really good campaign that came to a full fruition after like a year and a half of weekly play, which doesn't happen very often. Um, at least in my experience, um, things mm -hmm. sometimes can peter out a little bit. And, you know, and bounced around through a few different things. Moved down to Atlanta a few years ago. Had to completely find a whole new game group again. <laughs> Always me. a struggle. Always oh, a struggle. And it, it was rough. There are stories in there, and I don't want to disparage anybody, but the first couple groups that I tried to get involved with, just you know, they just, they just, I just didn't fit. You know, It just wasn't a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. um, and nearly a year after I was here, I kind of settled into a group of, of people that has you – know, the membership of the group has rotated a little bit, but we, but we play pretty consistently well. It's more like an every other week kind of thing, but – you know, it's been the same group for these for several years now, and mostly it's D and D, a little bit of Pathfinder, a little bit of Gamma World, um, and then of course with me developing my own game, I you know this last couple of years I've been running a lot of Murders and Acquisitions, although again still have not had the opportunity to play it as a player yet. Right, right. I'm, I'm hoping that one of these days one of my friends who backed it and is going to get the book is going to say, "Hey, Craig, would you like to play your game?" <laughs> I would love to play my game, <laughs> um, but we'll see where that goes. So that's, that's kind of the whole rundown of playing. I mean, I started jamming, you know, and there came a point too, where I got my hand, my, got my grubby little hands on a computer and I started writing my own content kind of beyond just scribbling stuff down for, you know, week to week gaming. I've written hundreds of thousands of words worth of just stuff that never saw the light of, light of day playing or jamming. 
much less getting published. It was, you know, it was all stuff that I did for the, the creative outlet because I enjoyed the process. And so, and I actually kind of, in preparation for this, I flipped back through and looked at some of, you know, some of the stuff that I had developed. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. I did that. <laughs> it never <laughs> went anywhere, but you know, here's 40 pages of this thing that I just kind of wrote up in my free time. And that slowly turned into actually freelance work. But that's, uh, you know, it was one of those things that my whole process, it took me forever to get to play the game in the first place. I was in college. And there's wow. a lot of designers out there who, you know, they have fond memories of being fourth graders and gaming all weekend and, you know, doing the Stranger Things <laughs> thing where it's like your buddies and you're just hanging around. All I, don't, I don't have that experience. It wasn't until mm-hmm. college. So I guess I have... I don't want to say a more mature experience because, you know, we certainly had our immature moments, but I don't <laughs> quite, I don't have those, you know, those crazy fourth grader days of, of just, you know, just crazy. Everybody's got purple swords and riding a unicorn and here we go. <laughs> um, it never quite got that where they got that place for me. And, and so, it, it, so the gaming got started kind of slowly late and relatively speaking late in life. And then, you know, I started GMing and then that slowly turned into writing stuff on my own and that slowly turned into, um, actually getting something published and actually, you know, getting paid a couple bucks to engage in my hobby. Let's talk a little bit about that. Like how, how did you get to that point? What was that first thing that you wrote and how do you sort of make that leap from doing something as a hobby to then, you know, engaging with it sort of in an amateur way and then actually getting paid for it? You know, how do, how do you make that leap? How did you make that leap? Well, what happened was, Oh, how do I tell the story? Okay, I'm I I don't like name dropping, but it helps to tell the story. Hey, you got it. You got it. Okay. <laughs> now, like a lot of people that I've heard even on this podcast Gamer to Gamer, um it just kind of happened by accident. They didn't really look go out looking for it. And what happened was uh when 3rd edition D&D came out, you know, I'm I'm here I'm a decade into playing the game, right? Playing games. And I was going to college or had been going to college with Jason Bowman. Mm back before he was a powerful game designer when he was an <laughs> architecture student and then eventually an architectural intern like me he became one of the organizers for the living gray hawk in wisconsin which was for the high folk region so every you know living gray hawk had all the world was all broken up into pieces in wisconsin because it has a disproportionately high number of gamers because it was invented there in lake geneva it uh you know wisconsin got its own region and so they needed 12 modules for their first year. And so each of the people organizing wrote a couple and they asked a couple of people. And I ended up writing Adventure 1-12, Winter Tears, because ah. Jason said, hey, Craig, you come up with some cool ideas. Can you write them down uh, so that other <laughs> people can understand them? And I said, I can give it a shot. Mm-hmm. And I wrote that and I've looked back on that and it is poorly written. Ah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good adventure. It's an interesting adventure. There's some fun stuff in there. But just as far as like just writing from a, from a technical point of view, it is no good. Um, so <laughs> I've improved, I hope. But I wrote that and then that kind of, you know, eh, okay, that was cool. And then year, a few years later, Jason kind of, he moved up the ranks to global organization and then eventually got a job for Paizo working on Dragon Magazine. He moved out there. At one point, he came to me and said, hey, remember how I had you write something for me before? Would you like to write something again? I said, <laughs> sure. And he got me and Chris, uh, Chris Tulak um, to write a pair of feature articles for Dragon Magazine. And uh, so I did that. And then I was like, well, you know what? Uh, that was fun, and I'm getting paid some money. Let's start pitching. So I started pitching some ideas, and I got three things in the pipe, and they accepted them. And I set them off. 
the first draft, everything was good, and then fourth edition came along, <laughs> and um, Wizards took the licenses back for Dragon and Dungeon. Mm-hmm. And they allowed Paizo to kind of wrap up where they were going with an adventure path, and that was in Dungeon Magazine and, and, and so forth. But then, boom, it was becoming a digital thing. And my understanding is that Wizards reviewed all the stuff that had been submitted and, you know, is there anything we want to try to turn into fourth edition? And all three of my uh, things in the pipe went poof. Wow. Uh, however, Chris, who had paired up with me to write that Dragon Magazine uh, du- double article, started working for Wizards. Yes, And he, he did. said... He said, Craig, would you like to write some, something for us? And I said, sure. <laughs> and so I wrote a couple of adventures for the RPGA. And then, as fate would have it, uh, about seven or so years ago, the best thing that ever happened to my freelance career happened. I got laid off from my day job. Mm. So I suddenly had all this time and a need for supplemental income. And so I said, hey, Chris, how about you make, let me write more? And he gave my name to some people and they gave my name to some people and I started writing a few things for the website because at the time, if you, if you recall, when 4th Edition got rolling, they had big plans for digital mm-hmm. and for the website and, and for a, a character emulator and all this kind of stuff. And it, it, it didn't all quite pan out, but one of the things they did was a lot of, there was plenty of free content on the website. You didn't have to uh, subscribe to the magazines to get stuff. You could get at least some things on the website. And so I wrote a few things for that, and then eventually I started getting a few assignments for Dungeon Magazine and Dragon Magazine. And then I started pitching, and I pitched the crap out of those two magazines, and I think they turned into three things, three articles. (laughs) Because when you pitch a lot, um, you get rejected a lot, (laughs) it turns out, because, uh, you know, what you think is cool the person reading your pitch might think is kind of cool, but it isn't necessarily right for the magazine right? because it has to have a broader appeal. In fact, I pitched an idea once for like a crazy chef that made dishes out of monster parts. That is amazing. Um, and Chris Perkins said, that's so cool. Also very gross. And they <laughs> passed on it. Um, <laughs> there was a spot in there too where they weren't getting quite all the pitches that they wanted. And they were getting plenty of pitches, you know, don't get me wrong, Mm -hmm. but they were rejecting a lot of stuff, um, my stuff included. And so they started contacting some of their regular freelancers, which I was by this point, and as well as uh, reaching out to people who were doing blogs and writing stuff and creating stuff for their websites. They invited people and said, here's a list of ideas we'd like to see in the magazines. Would you like to write one of them? And you sent in a little list and said, okay, I want to try these three. And, And here's my order of preference. And so I got a couple of pieces that way, including like the biggest article that I worked on, which was a started as a 20,000 word adventure called Baba Yaga's Dancing Hut. Ah, uh, yes. I remember this adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Fun story behind that. It was one of those pitch ideas where they said, here's a list of things. And I said, well, I'm going to go after something big because I want to challenge myself. I had written shorter stuff. I had written some mid-length adventures. I want something big, big paycheck too. But at the same time, a challenge, right? 20,000 words. That was the upper end of yeah, these Yeah, that's ideas. a lot of exactly. words. Yes, it is. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll take that. And they said, okay, it's yours. And what it was actually was a, uh, a reimagining of a uh, adventure from like 1984 written by Roger E. Moore called The Dancing Hut. And so they wanted to kind of translate it. And that was from second edition. They wanted to translate it into fourth edition, which, you know, as you know, is a very, very distinctly different rule set. It um, is. Yeah, it had definitely. not only gone into the D20 thing with 3rd edition, it had gone into what D, uh, what 4th edition was with all the power-based gotcha. stuff. So it was very different. 
And so they, they came back to me and said, okay, it's yours at 15,000 words. And I said, okay, fine. <laughs> and then I started, I read the article, uh, the, the original module a couple times and I outlined the crap out of it. I sent that off and I got it approved with some tweaks. And then I started writing and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And are you familiar with <laughs> Yaga's Dancing Hut from that module anyway? Uh, yes. Yeah. It's got 48 rooms yeah. in it. I was going to say, it's, uh, <laughs> it is, in my recollection, because uh, I played a lot of 4th edition, and, uh, and I used a lot of adventures and played a lot of adventures, and in my recollection, that was a, an enormous adventure uh, to come out of uh, that magazine. It was one of the biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I describe it in the adventure as this is not so much an adventure as it is a location for adventures. And, and <laughs> nice. the, X, the XP total... Uh, rundown that kind of tells you is that if you play through that whole thing and deal with everything that's in the hut, you'd go up three levels. Wow. Um, <laughs> it's got 48 rooms in it. it in, in addition to all the setup stuff and, you know, getting into the hut and because it, it runs around and tries to stomp you and um, Baba Yaga herself and what she's up to and there's curses and all this other stuff. And then 48 rooms and they all interact with each other in weird ways and they're each mapped and it's a tesseract. It's built on a tesseract, so it's a fourth-dimensional cube. So every room accesses six other rooms, one from each side and one from the top and one from the bottom. And it's this crazy you know, hodgepodge of magical map overlay. And every room has something different going on. And, and I was writing, and I was writing, and I was thinking, this is, there's no way this is going to fit in 15,000 words. And so I contacted Chris Perkins, who was my producer for that project. And he said, okay, go ahead with 20. 20,000. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and I started writing and I was writing and I was writing and I was like, this, this isn't going to make it in 20,000 words. And so I contacted him again. And I did that three more times. And each time he bumped it like 3,000 words. And eventually it ended up being 30,000 words oh my to contain God. Baba Yaga's Dancing Hut. Now, if this had been a print magazine, mm-hmm. I would have been stuck with 15,000 words or the project would have died. Oh, sure, yeah, because, because then the price of the whole magazine goes up because they need more pages, right? Well, and they, they, would, they need to dedicate more space to it, and that means other things get dumped, which you don't want to do to the authors. Mm-hmm. There's limited space because they have to put so much space toward advertisers and so forth in order to be able to make the magazine. But as a digital product, it can get as big as it wants to be. You know, As long as they want to pay me for the content and pay the amount of art – that needs to go into it. So it did, it just ballooned huge. And it ended up coming in around 30,000 words. Now it got edited and, and developed and trimmed up a little bit. But it, it's a big, big um, adventure. I mean, I'm looking at it in my PDF right here. It's 56 pages. Oh um, it's a monster. And uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> and I wrote it, I wrote it completely in a month. Wow. Wow. Now, I, spent, is- I spent two weeks just prepping. Mm-hmm. I wrote, um, you know, I, I read through the thing. I outlined it. I sent the outline off. I got it back. I sat down. I broke down every room. Here's what's going to be in it. Here's what I can translate. These, you know, each room has something going on, right? Sometimes it's just combat-y kind of stuff going on. But sometimes there's a little, there's a, a, a room with a pool in it and it has weird magical effects. And there's a, there's a hedge maze and there's, there's, you know, all this crazy stuff. So some of it had to get, you know, the fourth edition treatment. So I had to figure out what it all had to turn into. And then once I started actually typing, I wrote it in about a month. And as luck would have it, I was going out to Seattle for the July 4th weekend um, to visit other friends, um, including Jason, over that weekend. And I said, I'm going to get this thing done in time to give it to Chris to read through it before I get out there. And we're going to sit down and talk about it. Rather than having 17 emails back and forth about the revisions, Let's sit down for an hour and a half and talk it. 
And so that's what I did. And, uh, and I met with Chris um, on a Friday morning, and we kind of went through a few things. And um, I came back. I play tested it, ran a play test of it once while I was out there. I came back, and I, I did the revisions in like 10, 10 12 days. And then uh, a little while after that, submitted it. And uh, only had to re- return to it one time to add some content to it. I, didn't, I wasn't quite as descriptive as I should have been with some of the uh, fourth edition always in, the, in the, those dungeon adventures. They always had like uh, tactics. Like, you know, a little, it would spell out a little bit of like what the monsters would do if they got into a fight, like what each one would do. So I had to add some more to that because it was a little, a little thin, but that one happened. And then it, it, and then it came out in that November. So you ended up having to add words to this thing. Yeah. I added like another thousand words after the fact. (laughs) That, I mean, uh, first of all, that is a prolific uh, amount of writing, even for somebody who is making freelancing their full time career, you must have learned uh, a ton during that time. Uh, not just writing that, but all the other stuff that you were writing about how to write very quickly, uh, which is a, a skill that there's many, many freelancers who work for years and years and years and uh, they don't develop. You know, that's crazy. Have you always been on time with your stuff? I've never missed a deadline. Awesome. That is awesome. No, I, I pride myself on that. I, I, I don't joke around. And it's one of the reasons that I was breathing down the neck of some of the people doing murders and acquisitions because I'm, I'm that way. I, wow. will, I, will, I, I will not miss a deadline. Now, that said, you know, sickness, death in the family, if something happens, that's a different story. But I've been lucky enough, nothing like that has happened. But I've, you know, I've, I've hit my deadlines. Even like the crazy, you know, seven or eight week turnaround that I had for Baba Yaga, I also learned how to not have a social life for a month. That helped a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I imagine that's, that's gotta be hard. Um, yeah. you when know, you know, uh, cause I have a day job. I mean, this is part time for me. Right. Right. Well, and so let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the time that you were, uh, you know, so to speak, living the dream and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and freelancing. Um, what did you learn from, from that time, uh, trying to freelance full time? Uh, well, I mean, by, by freelancing full time, what we really mean here, everybody, is I was, you know, working on one thing at a time, and it might be five thousand words, mm-hmm. um, and right. that was only for four months because then I got a day job and went back to the regular, the regular uh, role of my day. And there goes the train, everybody. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to Craig's world. So, so wait, I'm sorry. I think I need to correct myself. Then, so when you wrote that twenty thousand. Or actually, thirty-one thousand. Yeah, thirty-one thousand word adventure for Chris Perkins and the folks at Watsi. Uh, you were working a full-time job at the same time. I was working fifty hours a week. Oh my god! I worked. Yeah, and here's the, are you want, want me to ramp it up? You ready to take this nuclear? Because yeah. I got the story for you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Here, here I am. I'm wor- I'm writing I'm working on it every night for a minimum of 2 hours. I'm working on it every Saturday and Sunday for a minimum of 4 for a month. In the middle of this, something that I told to the folks at Wizards comes back to haunt me because I told them in an effort to continue to keep my freelancing come in. I said, "Hey, you know what? If you have a, an author that kind of has to drop out on you, something happens that they can't do their project and you you needed, you know, somebody to fill in and turn it around." I'm your guy. And when did they come to me to do that? The one time they did it was in the middle of Baba Yaga's Dancing Hut. Oh, so I wrote man. a tavern I wrote a tavern profile called the Beached Leviathan, which is I don't remember for sure, it was 3000-ish words, right dead in the middle of all of that in like two evenings. Wow. 
Um, and then went back to Baba Yaga's dancing hut. Oh, Craig, man, that is <laughs> that is insane. <laughs> now, on the upside, I never did that again. Right. That was my trial by fire, maybe. Mm-hmm. The, the part-timers trial by fire. It's like, okay, you wanted to part-time, smart guy. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Um, we'll make you regret everything you've ever <laughs> said to us. I dug it, but man, after that month, I was burned out hard. I'm glad I had that little trip, and then I did the re- rewrites, and, and then things that came after that were like smaller in scope, so they weren't quite as pressure-filled. The, the killer about the higher word count thing is that it's it's – I, what I've learned for me, it feels like anyway, is that the higher the word count, obviously the more work there is. But it's not a linear progression; it's it's a it's a uh, a quadratic progression. You know, it because now you've got all these things that have to relate to one another in different ways. So you're you've got all you know the thing that happens in scene eight needs to play off of scene two, and it needs to lead you to scene thirteen, and it needs to get you to this location, and it needs it's important to this guy's backstory, and this monster is going to interact with it this way, and it's all these pieces, all this spider web of information, you know. So whenever you you know increase that word count, especially for adventures, um, there's so much cross pollination between all the pieces of the adventure that it's it's not just more word count; it's more relationships between pieces. So it takes a lot more out of you i think at least for me oh sure yeah i think i think that's one of the things is especially when you're writing an adventure for somebody else right it's the old uh well we'd like it to you know sometimes especially if you're writing for organized play or something we'd like it to be this long and we'd like it to have this many experience points in it you know and then you're like okay you're playing this game where you how many battles do I need and how much experience does each battle need to be? And Oh, look, it's too long. We're going to cut an encounter. Oh, this means the other encounter's got to get beefed up. It's like a whole uh, chess game. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you know, it, it really is. Uh, it really is crazy. Unlike your home game when you can just say, hey, you know what? We're just going to uh, leave this encounter to the side. We'll play it next week. You know, it's a whole different beast. So you're you're there. You're doing a ton of stuff for fourth edition. Take us through the the rest of your uh, your career up to now, because at some point you say to yourself, I would like to make my own system, uh, which is probably one of the craziest things a person can do other than maybe write 31,000 words in a month. Uh, so <laughs> uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, uh, you know, the, the fourth edition Wizards of the Coast D&D stuff continued. Um, and I did a little bit of Pathfinder stuff. A connection that I made writing something for fourth edition actually turned into some eventual Iron Kingdoms work. But then what happened was 4th edition started to kind of ramp down and 5th edition was in playtest and Wizards of the Coast stopped putting out crunchy books. You know, they started putting out system agnostic stuff, a lot of flavor. And they were keeping a lot of that in-house or with particular freelancers. So my, you know, the magazines kind of dried up and that's where my freelancing was. And so, you know, even though I had the occasional little thing here, it, it, it slowed down quite a bit. And I thought, okay, you know, I've got 30 or so credits under my belt. I think I know what I'm doing with this. I've written a bunch for other people's systems. I'm going to try to design my own game. I'm going to try to design my own system in the process and keep it simple. But my own system primarily is a challenge to myself. I could have used D20 or Savage Worlds or Gumshoe or whatever, Fate. Um, but I decided, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to make the dice work. And that allowed me to make the game that I created murders and acquisitions kind of wholly my baby in that respect. And that I, I didn't have to really, I didn't have to get approval from anyone on anything until I put it on Kickstarter. I didn't have to get, you know, 
legally signed off on by whoever is in charge um, or to get the blessing of you know, the Savage Worlds folks, the Pinnacle people or anything like that. I could just kind of you know, just run with it blindly until I hit uh, the Kickstarter and then I start looking for approval from everybody. So it, it just kind of built up. It was one, like I said, it was one of those things that I just kind of, you know, I did this and a few years later I did that and a few years later and it just, it built and built and built. And I think I'm at about the top end of the level of involvement I want to be. I don't want to go beyond kind of designing my own small scale thing. I, I, I don't feel I have the time or the inclination really to get into anything heavier, like really robust systems. I just don't have the time, you know, having a, a full-time job. Um, or it would take me, you know, 10 years to put the game together. And that's, <laughs> it was, it was tough enough doing three years to get a game put together. You know, I don't know that I could keep myself motivated for 10 years on something really big and complicated. So we're going to keep it under control. Yeah, of course, of course. And and that makes perfect sense. I think creating your own simple system is uh, is mind-boggling in and of itself. Um, and I have not seen murders and acquisitions rules, so I actually can't tell people yet uh, how complicated or simple it is. Um, but I will say I am excited. Uh, I am a Kickstarter backer uh, for people. You are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you sold me, man. On In that podcast, uh, I just got... <laughs> So, so excited when we were talking about it. Let's, uh, let's for the people who may have missed that podcast or may have forgotten, just give us real quick the elevator pitch for Murders and Acquisitions. Uh, well, it's a tabletop RPG of um, espionage, subterfuge, intrigue, theft, and murder set in an absurd corporate world where everything's kind of over the top, um, a little more cutthroat, a uh, strong sense of humor and hyperbole and exaggeration to it. You know, the way I described it always was, you know, you are literally backstabbing your way to the corner office. And so it's a little bit of kind of fantasy <laughs> wish fulfillment for anybody who works in an office. Or, you know, you could extrapolate it into a lot of different jobs, too. And so, yeah, you, I mean, it's, it's, it's a straightforward system. You Basically, you've got a couple of dice. You're going to roll them, add them together, compare it to a target number. There's, uh, there's a little more robustness to that without getting into details, you know, there's, it's not that quite that simple. There's, there's ways to modify how you're rolling things. And there's a point system that allows you to gain some bonuses. And, uh, you know, the character sheet looks like a resume with a driver's license taped onto it. And I kind of built the whole thing around the idea of like working in this office and just, you know, God, I can't stand that guy. If he fell down an elevator shaft, I could get promoted. And, you know, next day he's at the bottom of an elevator <laughs> shaft and you've got the corner office. And then, that's kind of the modern day version of it. And then there's a series of alternate rules that got funded out through the, uh, the Kickstarter as well. That's these add-on rules that you can just tack on, mix and match however you want. That add all sorts of other things like magic and monsters and cosmic horror and um, ultimately the apocalypse. You can, I, you can blow up the world. <laughs> and is this all inspired by your, uh, your own experiences working in an office? <laughs> no, I've actually had, you know, generally speaking, a, a good experience working in an office. Good. It's, it's the product of an imagination is what it is. <laughs> Cause you know, my brain latches onto a little something and I just run with it and I just go and, you know, sometimes it happens when I'm just talking to people and I just kind of extrapolate this idea and I start making a joke and it turns into a little story and, you know, improving my way through something because I find it entertaining. Um, and sometimes it goes into a game and it's just kind of the way my brain works. It's just like I suddenly get, get inspired to, to deal with this thing. And that's one of the things that made doing your own, my own game tough was that one of the things I've always felt personally for me anyway was that the best way for me to destroy my interest in doing this thing is to come up with the next thing. 
because <laughs> then my brain wants to run with that. Um, so I had to stay really focused and I reached my, uh, the thank yous out to friends who were very supportive and, and were always, you know, had kind words to say and, and kind of helped to nudge me forward and not to, uh, get bogged down with like, Oh, I've been doing this for two years and it's still not, you know, actually a real thing. And, you know, I love it, but everybody else is going to hate it. <laughs> um, because the chiding voice of self doubt and loathing, um, is something I think a lot of creative type people deal with all the time. Oh, um, yeah. and so, you, you know, you got to beat that sucker back down every so often and just say, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to get it done and I'm going to let the Kickstarter chips fall where they may. And, you know, as long as, uh, you know, if I put this in the hand of, hands of 50 people, I'm happy. And I, I put it in the hands of 263. So, wow. Good for Not too you. bad. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's really, really good. Uh, and it's one of the things I think that's cool about it is it, it has the ability then to catch on and, and go from there. So the Kickstarter was super, super successful. You hit a lot of your stretch goals and everything. Hit them all. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a great thing. Is that mainly what you have been playing uh, these last couple of... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... I, I was playing a little bit of uh, Savage Worlds. I was running a, uh, a, a Rippers. Oh, okay. The Ripper yeah. setting for Savage Worlds for a little while, and that kind of petered out. And then I ran a little bit of Gamma World, and that kind of petered out. And I finally said, you know, and I realized why it petered out, because my brain was so much into murders and acquisitions. I was having a hard time finding the time to sit down and prep for these other games. So yes, for, for a while now, it was pretty much murders and acquisitions, running my own play tests, um, organizing other people's play tests, going to conventions and running demos and play test games and that type of thing. So that's mostly what I've been doing. I've been, like I said, I haven't really played um, at murders and acquisitions, but I have, you know, I, I go to conventions and occasionally play some other stuff and I've got my group down here. That's, you know, ongoing. We're playing fifth edition D and D right now. It's, it's an every other week game, but I, uh, I want to get back into running something, um, but that probably won't happen until the next game is a little further along in development where I have enough uh, ready to kind of show to people. Oh, nice. Well, tell me a little bit about your 5th edition D&D game. Uh, what are you playing? Oh, well, I went on a little bit of a hiatus from the group um, <laughs> because of the Kickstarter and the aftermath of that. So I've only gotten back into it recently for a couple of sessions. Um, and it switched DMs in the process because one DM has got a whole bunch of life stuff going on and the other DM said, I'll do it. So I'm playing, oh, geez, what am I playing? I'm playing a uh, Dwarven Druid. Oh, um, nice. Who uh, has, uh, he's, 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 he's an amnesiac. He doesn't remember exactly most of his <laughs> life. And that was just an easy way for me to pop into the group and not have to have this big backstory and, and my DM can just use me as a plot hook. Yes. And give, give, give me a backstory at some point um, since I didn't have a history with the group. And uh, the, the one thing that he does always remember is he's got this, uh, this friend named Barrick who um, always had all these idioms and like, you know, Barrick used to say blah, 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 blah. And so that, you know, he pops in with his advice that way. And it's usually rude because uh, he's, he's not the, the most couth of the dwarves. But he's druidy, and he's got a little bit of rogue. He turns into animals and, and, and eats things and casts a few spells. And I'm still kind of wrapping my head around the character. You know, it's, and uh, right now, we're, we're kind of in the midst of going from one place to another. So we're kind of in that, uh, you know, Mount Doom is over there. We're getting, we're getting to, a, there's a big story over there. And we're just kind of sidetracking with some things until we get to the big story. 
Well, and I love the idea of having an amnesiac dwarf. Um, I have a, I have a friend who uh, he can never remember, you know, from session to session and that sort of thing. And but he loves doing it, and he's great at the table. You know, he just never remembers what's going on. So uh, he wrote a uh, an alcohol problem into his character <laughs> uh, so that he. <laughs> could have similar memory loss issues. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, 5th edition D&D is great, and I think it is great to play when you design too, uh, especially when you're in the mode of, like, trying to push out a new product. I know that that can uh, <laughs> help you, uh, you know, uh, because you're you're doing so much work on that and you don't have to then also prep your game. Um, but it does also help to run when you design as well. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely process. need to... With with the, with murders and acquisitions, I kind of I ran stuff here and there, mm-hmm. um, but there was also a lot of different subsets of rules that I had to try out. So I was constantly jumping around. Right, um, right. I th- yeah, I think the next game is going to be a tighter set of rules. So I think I'm gonna I'm gonna try very hard to get back into uh, running a you know maybe every other week campaign of constant play test myself. Oh, fun. in addition. With, a, with an actual group recurring along with whatever else, you know, other play testers that I get involved. So when you say the next game, uh, mm-hmm. do you mean the, the next game that you are designing? The next game that I've started designing earlier this year, yes. Uh, is there any chance you could say anything about it? I'm not going to press you if you're not ready to talk about it. But uh, Oh, no, I've, I've talked about it plenty. Excellent. And, Let's enough, talk anyway. about it. <laughs> um, it's tentatively titled Capers. It's oh, nice. uh, it's a supers game set in 1920s Prohibition America. Yes. Um, so it's you know Tommy guns and Model Ts and and I beams, and you know super strength and flying around and who knows what else. Um, so <laughs> and you can basically you can play a gangster and uh, you can play with powers or without. Although for me personally, the you know gangsters with superpowers is is where it's at. Uh, that's what I'd want to play. Um, not that I'm <laughs> going to get to, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, you can play a gangster who's trying to, you know, make his fortune with prohibition and all the vices and you know, alcohol and gambling and prostitution and racketeering and all this. Um, or you'll be able to play um, members of law enforcement trying to take those criminals down. You know, so they'll you'll see this superhero sort of version of. Um, some uh, actual historical figures. I already have some plans in place for like what Lucky Luciano is going to be like and Al Capone and Johnny Torrio. Although I, I, I'm taking the, the, the tack of <laughs> I don't know if you how much you know about the Prohibition era. Um, but uh, uh, just a little bit. What I, you know, what I learned in history class. There's probably. there's a few other things sprinkled in there, but it's almost entirely like the big names are Irish and Italian, <laughs> and and they're all dudes, um, and that is a very narrow demographic for characters that you might identify with. It is when you're looking at is, the game. Yeah. So Lucky Luciano is going to be a girl, and Johnny Torrio, who is Al Capone's mentor, is going to be a woman. So Chicago is actually going to be run by a woman because it's pre-Al Capone. Oh, cool! It's, it's when he's when he's coming up. So it's going to be Giada Torrio, um, nice, and Carla Luciano instead of Charles. And uh, you know, so I'm going to vary some things up, and I'm going to insert some fictional characters in order to get some other. Um, variations of types of people in there. So it's not all just constant Italians and Irishmen. Yeah, not just white dudes, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nothing but white dudes. <laughs> nothing but white dudes in their 20s. Here we go. So, yeah, I've got plans to kind of, you know, shake that up. And, and I'll, I'm, I'll play a little fast and loose with the period. I'm not going to necessarily say, okay, well, it's set in this year, so it means this thing hasn't been invented yet. Well, no, it's, it's in the 20s. 
kind of in the general in the 20s. So yeah. anything that existed in the 20s can be in this game. Um, you, you don't necessarily need to to have a history lesson of you know when things were invented or when you know a particular type of gun became available or whatever. Okay, all right. I mean that's that's great. Uh, so and it sounds I mean it sounds like you're making some good changes. Uh, obviously, games that appeal to more than just white dudes are, are in their twenties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, white dudes in their twenties, right? Uh, so and it sounds super super fun. Uh, superheroes of that era uh, are some of my favorite superhero stories and everything. So I'm excited to see how that goes. Well, it was it's one of those things that I'm not I'm not a big comic book guy. But I am a superhero guy. You know, I love, um, I, I read some comics here and there, but it's mostly like a TV shows and movies. And I understand the, the, the superhero, the history of comic books and how that stretches back to the 20s and 30s. And that's where a lot of stuff got started. But it was one of those things that, you know, I don't know that I've seen much in the way of gangsters with superheroes. It's an interesting world, the world of prohibition. And, and, you know, the flapper generation and, uh, you know, guys in fedoras and pinstripe suits and Tommy guns in violin cases. And I, and I, I dig the era. And so it's given me the opportunity to like, oh, hey, I can research some history, you know, like in the process of making this thing. I, that, that'll be fun, too. So, I'm, you know, I'm watching all sorts of gangster and organized crime movies and I'm reading books and um, looking at the, the Wikipedia to fill in some gaps and starting to build all of that together. So this, this game is going to have a much broader sense of world and setting than murders and acquisitions did, which was basically like, okay, it's the corporate world, but it's crazy. (laughs) Um, And you didn't have to tell, you didn't have to describe much more, right? You know, Mm -hmm. it's sure. Everybody has a frame of reference. Well, the typical person isn't necessarily going to know, you know, what the, Atlantic City boardwalk looked like. What, what could you do there? That's where some of the action can be set. There's there's a lot of really cool stuff that happened in Atlantic City during this period. Little interesting Americana. It is decidedly American, um, obviously, but I'm not going to play up so much the fact that it is America, although it is technically. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's an interesting period, a period of time that is of its place and of that generation, nestled between the two world wars. In the United States, when it was coming of age, post-industrial revolution, and there's nothing like it in the rest of the history of, of the world. Not quite like that. You know, there's times when, you know, certain things like that happen in there are kind of similar over here in this country at this time. But it's, it's, got, it's, it's got an aesthetic to it and a feel to it. And it's been popularized in media to, in, a, in a certain way that I think, you know, it's just it's an entertaining era to set a story in. And I think uh, hopefully people will be able to grasp that pretty quickly. And you have superpowers, you know, <laughs> um, or not, um, or you have uh, power armor, kind of, you know, some variation on that. You know, you might just be, you know, super super intelligent with a lot of cool gear. There'll be, you know, variations of that too. You'll have your 1920s version of Iron Man and Batman. Um, hopefully, if I can figure that all out. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds super, super fun, uh, 1920s uh, Iron Man and Batman. I am definitely on board for that. So. <laughs> uh, well, that sounds really, really, really fun, Craig. Uh, so what is the what was the, the inspiration for this? Was it just, you know, that you like this era and, uh, you know, everything that you were just kind of talking about, that you're a superhero guy but not a comic book guy, that kind of thing? Well, yeah, kind of a little bit of both of that. I mean, it was, it began with the idea of like, okay, a supers game. Okay, not a comic book game, but a superhero game. Mm -hmm. But 
I want to set it someplace. First of all, I don't want to do modern day because that's what murders and acquisitions is set in. I want to do something where I can really explore a setting because I want to challenge myself and I can explore a period in history. And so I started looking at different places that I could set it. And I was like, well, let's start with the places that I find interesting. I was like, oh, well, the Old West. And I was like, well, that's called Deadlands. Um, <laughs> you know, yes, you're harrowed or you're blessed or you're, or, or you're a huckster, but it's still kind of superheroes, you know? Sure. With, with monsters. Your characters have these extraordinary abilities. And I, I bounced around a few, a, a few different things. And I, you know, I'm a, a child of the 80s. I was like, well, let's take it back to the 80s. And I was like, ah, that's Watchmen. It's going to get c- compared to that, you know? Right, right, and, sure. But, and I finally just kind of was like, you know, well, what about if, you know, Al Capone got his scar, his, the scars on his face, because he's known as Scarface. What if he got those scars and him receiving those and, and receiving his first real wound um, in a bar fight is what sparked something in him that made him nigh unto indestructible. Mm. And that's soup. And that maybe we'll see what happens, but maybe that's Capone's um, thing is that he's just tough as hell to kill. I love that. That's awesome. Um, but he does have these scars. Mm-hmm. as a reminder of how frail his body once was. And so it brings kind of a, an interesting little twist to the character's history. And then I just, you know, and I, I'm a fan of Boardwalk Empire, and I went and I started digging up history on um, some of the hotbeds of prohibition activity. And the more, I, the more I dug, the more I thought this is, you know, there's a lot of fun in here. I mean, like, I, I, I have visions in my head of, of half-page illustrations of a speedster running alongside a Model T. Mm-hmm. And trying to catch the Model T because he's so fast that he can catch, you know, how fast does a Model T move on a dirt road in New Jersey? Not very fast, but he's, he's still fast. He's faster than that. And, and, and these aren't going to be like Nova characters that there's, there's no Superman or Hulk or somebody that's, you know. Right, right. Uh, can't, can't be defeated. Gotcha. Um, it's, it's, it's more middling ground of, of super, of superpowers. So, you know, a speedster is, is really fast and he can pretty much overcome, overtake any vehicle on the road. Partly because the vehicles on the road don't move that fast yet, even if they're on paved roads. So, you know, I just little things, you know, a shot of, you know, this, this vision of, of a flying dude hurling eye beams at somebody who's unloading on him with a double Tommy gun, you know, <laughs> and they're all wearing the appropriate attire. And the background is, you know, six story masonry buildings. And then there's a theater with a big marquee all lit up, you Gosh, know, the so Ritz. Excited. How, how long before we uh, hop on roll 20 and play test this thing? When does that start <laughs> happening? Uh, um, I'm in, just let me know where to be. So <laughs> my hope is, you know, it, it all takes a backseat to murders and acquisitions and getting that published and out right, the door. Right. Yeah, my hope is that by the time M and a is in the hands of the backers, I will be within about a month of being able to dump capers into play testers hands. Wow. In the most rudimentary form. Of course. Yeah, that's uh but you're you're doing a lot of stuff. Uh and you you like as you mentioned, have a full time job as well. Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy stuff, man. Uh where can people find you on the internet? Oh, uh you can find me. Um there's all sorts of stuff at nerdburgergames.com. I'm in the process of retooling the site a little bit so that murders and acquisitions will have its own dedicated page with just MA stuff, and then there'll be another page for we can go for caper stuff and um once i get back in a little uh, into designing a little more with capers the the blog posts will be happening more for design stuff right now the blog posts are all pretty much you know right in line with the kickstarter updates and just reiterating that kind of stuff you can find uh, nerdburger games on facebook as well i kind of i post there every so often and throw something up there and uh, I host, I co-host a weekly podcast of my own with uh, Mike, the guy who's doing the layout 
on murders and acquisitions because he's a sucker and volunteered for it. <laughs> um, but he's getting paid, so. It's called, surprisingly, the Nerd Burger Podcast. Oh. Um, and you can find that at nerdburgershow.com. And that goes, that's uh, we're at, you know, three years-ish, something over three years of, of a hour-long episode every week. Come, they come out on Wednesdays. That's awesome. That's I can't believe that you also podcast on top of all this stuff. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> quick, quick story on the podcast. Mike loves when I tell this story. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. We bounced the idea of a podcast back and forth, and it was just kind of half serious in my head. I was kind of like, "Oh, what will we talk about?" And we started talking about, well, "We can talk about a nerd, you know, nerdy, geeky stuff that we're into, and we can have guests on, just friends of ours, rotate people around, blah blah blah." And I was just kind of like, "Yeah, yeah, right, whatever. This is never going to happen." And then Mike said, "I'll do all the technical stuff. All you have to do is show up and be funny." <laughs> and I said, "Done." <laughs> and like, I don't know, six weeks later, seven weeks later, we were recording our first episode. Wow. That's, because uh, because he edits <laughs> right right yeah and that is that is clutch if you have a good editor uh it certainly makes your life easier uh in podcasting ask him if he wants to edit more podcasts uh, <laughs> <laughs> well he's got a layout to take care of first so oh gotcha gotcha yeah so well when he's done uh no i'm just kidding <laughs> uh but uh you know craig it is a delight to have you and uh and now that we've had you on gamer to gamer and we've had you on the round table uh i'd love to ask you back to be part of the round table panels at some point because i think your your knowledge there would be invaluable and be great to hear you and some of the other people with some game design chops talk about an unearthed arcana article or or something like that would just be magical I think for the listeners. So if you're in into that, uh, you know, we'd love to have you if you've got the time for it, uh, which I don't know if you know about this, but there's this thing humans do sometimes it's called sleep. Um, uh-huh. and you may want to try that at some point. Uh, I've heard it's awesome. <laughs> it's just the best. Yeah. I have heard that as well. I have also heard that. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on gamer to gamer, Craig. You're welcome, James. Thank you very much for having me on. All right, everybody. You can find me on Twitter at James Intercasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition D&D world I'm building, and it's all about some other 5th edition stuff. In fact, right now, I'm adding a giant lord to Storm King's Thunder, so come check that out, worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks to Craig for being on the show. Special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And hey, if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. It helps people find us. It is a huge, huge boon. Remember, life is a game. Eventually, you've got to roll a 20. <laughs>